Today, we're going to be talking about psychologists and specifically what a psychologist does to help you in your recovery if you've been injured in an accident. Hi, I'm Andrew Iacobelli. I'm a personal injury lawyer with Iacobelli Law Firm, and I'm joined today by psychologist Dr. Jeremy Frank. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your practice, Dr. Frank. So I am a clinical and rehabilitation psychologist, licensed in Ontario, licensed in a number of other provinces as well, uh, out east. I run a private practice. It's actually a clinic at Young and Center in Thornhill, uh, where we have a number of psychologists, social workers, and registered psychotherapists. We do a lot of clinical assessment as well as psychological treatments for a host of different types of problems, whether it's for people who have been in car accidents or other types of injuries, or people who come to see us for other reasons in their life, such as relationship problems or depression or that, you know, that kind of thing. I'm currently the president of the Canadian Academy of Psychologists and Disability Assessments. What we're interested in is understanding why it is that some people are able to go back to work, for example, or able to do things in their life after an accident from a psychological perspective, whereas other people have psychological injuries and impairments that would prevent them from doing things in life. I think a lot of people are wondering, what does a psychologist actually do? That's a big question. Uh, there are many different areas of psychology. You have school psychology, rehabilitation psychology, neuropsychology, clinical psychology, the list goes on and on. I think when most people think of a psychologist, largely people think about a clinical or a counseling psychologist. I'm a clinical psychologist and I'm also a rehabilitation psychologist. A clinical psychologist typically focuses on assessment and treatment of clinical conditions. A clinical condition would be some type of a mental disorder that results in a lot of distress and impairment in your life. So that might be depression or a type of anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, eating disorders, for example. And while a clinical psychologist typically focuses on reduction of symptoms and managing a clinical disorder, a rehabilitation psychologist focuses more on return to function. If somebody is injured in some way or has some type of stressor in their life that results in them being unable to do things, right. then how can we help them return to the function that they were at prior from a psychological perspective? How would someone know whether it would be a good idea to see a psychologist? It's a good question. I, mean, I, th I think as the years go by, people are becoming more and more attuned to the reality of mental health conditions and stigma around mental health is decreasing, which is a good thing. Yes. And people are more open to it. Things to think about. Do you have a pattern of emotions or behaviors or thoughts that cause you a lot of distress? Perhaps leads you to feeling sad on a frequent basis or angry out of control on a frequent basis. Potentially you feel uh, anxious, scared, worried in a way that feels uncontrollable to you and that causes you a lot of distress. Do those types of problems interfere with your functioning? Do you avoid going out? Do you avoid seeing friends? Do you have a hard time getting along with family? Uh, do you find yourself wanting to stay in your room? You know, okay. that kind of thing. Okay. And if someone uh, does come to you, let's say somebody after an accident, they're feeling some of these emotions and they want to explore it further and see if you can help them. What are the first steps when they, when they contact your office or when they meet with you? 
So if somebody contacted us after a car accident, we would first have a, we have an intake department that would, by telephone, ask you a number of questions about what happened to you in your accident and what types of psychological symptoms that you're having. Maybe you have a fear of driving, for instance, or maybe you're having nightmares or intrusive memories of the accident. Uh, maybe you don't want to talk to anybody, that kind of thing. And so we would do a very basic screening interview by phone really just to substantiate the need for funding so that we can convince an insurance company that it makes sense to pay for a psychological assessment. And so we would then have that person sign what's called an OCF-18, which is a claim form that requests funding from an insurance company. And we would request funding for a comprehensive psychological examination. Okay. And we would send it to the insurance company and hope that they approve it. And if they approved it, we would set up the assessment, which means that that person would meet with one of our assessors together with myself, or they would meet with one of our other psychologists. And it's a fairly comprehensive assessment. It's a, a long interview that asks the person about their life before the accident, what happened in the accident, how they've been doing since the accident. Um, it asks about terms of functioning, and it also asks questions in the area of pain, pain coping, post-traumatic stress, nightmares, depression, anxiety, okay. uh, maybe memory and concentration problems, alcohol use, that kind of thing, sleep problems, the list goes on. And then we give a number of questionnaires that are based in science and that allow us to put some scientific numbers behind our clinical impression so that the opinion that we're giving is defensible, whether it needs to be defensible in court or whether it just needs to be defensible that we could say, it's not just that this person is telling us this, but we have scientific data behind what they're saying to substantiate what they're saying. And we, uh, we might review a medical file if it's sent to us. And we, with all of that, we would arrive at a clinical formulation and a diagnosis. And that allows us then to tailor a treatment plan to that person's needs. Because somebody who has, for example, post-traumatic stress disorder, which is a condition where somebody feels haunted by their car accident uh, and unable to get away from the feelings and the uh, and the, the repulsiveness of the memory itself, yes. that person needs a different type of psychological talk therapy than somebody with depression or somebody with a, a chronic pain condition needs, for example. I see, okay. And then in terms of the therapy, you establish a treatment plan and the therapy is counseling. Am I, am I correct in that? Is that sort of what you would describe it as? I think of psychotherapy and counseling as two different things. Counseling is a, a little bit more advice giving, uh, supportive conversations for people who really need some, really a supportive relationship that helps people feel better about the decisions that they're making and, you know, and maybe need some advice, some solution focused work, that kind of thing. I see. Psychotherapy is a deeper type of treatment in my view. Uh, it, it entails targeting a condition. I could go on for hours about different types of psychotherapy. There are sure. literally hundreds of types of psychotherapy, but largely they could be divided into two camps. Uh, one is a type of psychotherapy, which is symptom focused. You have a symptom, you don't like it. We want to help you get rid of that symptom. An example of that is, uh, you, uh, you were in a car accident. You're afraid of driving. You're not, you're avoiding cars. You want to get rid of that fear so you can go back in cars. That type of psychotherapy, which is symptom focused is typically shorter in duration. It's typically structured. It has an agenda. You're helping people to 
And largely, these therapies are referred to as cognitive behavioral therapies, and where you're helping people to identify thought patterns that they have that might not be based in reality, and that might be maladaptive in the way that they're thinking. Some people in the literature call it twisted thinking. And an example of that might be all-or-nothing thinking. So cars are extremely dangerous or cars are extremely safe and there's nothing in between. And we might help people to see the different shades of gray for as, as an example. The other camp of psychotherapy is more of an exploratory therapy that assumes that a symptom is there for a reason because it tells you something about yourself deep down inside. You're not trying to stamp out the symptom. You're trying to get to know the person, not the symptom. And through a, a, a much more relational and deeper emotionally based therapy, oh, typically over a longer period of time, people can start to understand patterns in their personality that lead them to feel things and lead them to behave in a certain way so that they feel freer to make other decisions in their lives. Okay. So you're really working closely with, with the person and, and, and it's, it has to be geared towards their specific symptoms to sort of help them find their own solution in a way? Yeah, I think so. I mean, when we, when we think about people after a car accident, really we're typically talking about the first type of therapy. It's a symptom-focused therapy. Yes, yeah. It would be different than somebody who comes to me and says, you know, I'm just dissatisfied in my life. I just feel empty and I can't make my relationships work and my dating life is falling apart because I never find anybody who I like and every time I do like somebody, they don't like me, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Whereas after a car accident, people come in with nightmares or intrusive memories. They come in with depression. They come in with pain coping problems where they're avoiding all sorts of things in life in fear that the pain will get worse or that they'll be re-injured. These are more psychological conditions that require a, a symptom-focused intervention around those symptoms. We teach people to understand the relationship between their thoughts and their feelings. So sometimes people feel sad and they don't really realize why they feel sad and you can help them to start f focusing on the thoughts that they had around that. So getting them to slow down be present in the moment and realize why they're kind of running a loop. Oftentimes, you know, we'll hear from clients, they're, they're reluctant. They might be feeling these symptoms or afraid to bring them up. They don't like to talk about it. They're reluctant to see a psychologist. What I also notice is after they've seen a psychologist, they're usually impressed that, that that's the one service they really don't want to give up. They find it, <laughs> they find it exceedingly helpful. And so what would you tell people that maybe have these sort of feelings, concerned about opening up about what's, what's going on emotionally for them? What would you tell them? We see this all the time where we have some people who come to us who are eager and ready to go. Maybe they've seen a psychologist in the past, or maybe they just buy into it because their cultural background or their family background is very pro-psychotherapy. As an example, if you go into a restaurant on the Upper East Side of New York City and you just keep your ears open, you'll hear, my therapist said this, well, right. my therapist said that, and everybody's talking about their therapist. Where There are other groups um, or other areas where no one would want anybody to know at all. It's highly stigmatized. And so the first thing I'd say is keep an open mind. Psychotherapy is not simply this hokey-pokey art Psychotherapy has a very large scientific basis behind it. We're talking about hundreds and hundreds of research studies that have investigated what works in psychotherapy, 
what types of psychotherapy work, what types of psychotherapy work for what types of person. Right. Having therapy for the average person is considerably better than having no therapy when you're struggling. We see people who come in and they're very hesitant and they just, they're not buying in. And there's a small percentage of them that never buy in. When that happens, we're not able to be helpful. The majority of them might come in feeling hesitant, maybe being reluctant to talk about themselves and open up. But if they find the right therapist, I'll talk briefly about the whole idea of a match, but if you find the right therapist, you'll start to ease into feeling more comfortable being yourself and talking about what you're struggling with. And many more times than not, they feel relief in a surprising way and they start to see improvements in their emotional and their psychological functioning in a way that they were not expecting. Finding a psychologist or a psychotherapist or a social worker, somebody who's going to do psychotherapy with you, is not like finding a heart surgeon. You're not looking for the best. You're looking for the best match for you. There have people who have seen me and said, ah, he's not my right. cup of tea. He's, this is not the guy I want to see. And they've had an honest conversation with me about it. And I've said, okay, let's have you seen somebody else. And I've sent them to my buddy Dan down the street, who's a psychologist, and they've loved Dan. And then there are other people who have seen Dan and they didn't like Dan. They came see they can't come and say they've seen me and they've loved me. It really is about the match. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because it's a very personal, private conversation and, and, you know, and you have to have, I would imagine, a very good relationship with your therapist. Right. What's the difference between a psychologist and th some of these other practice areas like psychiatrist or psychotherapist or, I don't know, there might be other social worker, for instance? Sure, sure. It's an important question, and I think it's an, it's an area that a lot of people feel confused about. So I'll try to break it down here. A psychiatrist is a medical doctor. They go to medical school. And they have expertise in diagnosing mental disorders and prescribing medication for mental disorders. So they might prescribe an antidepressant or an anti-anxiety medication or an anti-psychotic medication for psychosis, yes. that kind of thing. Okay. Back in the day, psychi psychiatrists were heavily trained in psychotherapy as well. A small group of them right now are trained in psychotherapy at a high level and will do it as part of their practice. They're just not incentivized to do it in Ontario. They make much more money by seeing a lot of people in 15-minute increments than they yeah. do seeing one person over an hour. So most of them focus really on medication Okay, for the most part. A clinical psychologist goes for they do an undergraduate program so there's yes. uh, you know four years there three or four years there depending on which province they're in they then do a typically a phd or a psyd a phd is a typically called a doctor of philosophy in psychology a psyd is a doctorate in psychology as an example myself uh i was in graduate school between doing my master's and my phd my doctorate yes uh, my doctoral program I was in grad school for, I, I want to say, about seven years. Uh, wow. So it's a fairly lengthy, wow, it's lengthy very process. Lengthy. Then there's a clinical internship for a full year after that. And then in Ontario, we also have a year uh, or approximately a year, sometimes a bit more of supervised practice where a psychologist is overseeing your work when you're already really to go. Or you're pretty much ready to go, but they are overseeing your work so that they can essentially sign off on you. A social worker 
uh, typically does a, 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 I guess, a bachelor degree and then a master's in social work. And in that program, they there's a lot of vari variability in terms of how much they focus on different types of things. Some of them are very focused on more of the social work aspects yes. of helping people in the community who okay. are struggling in different areas. Some of them focus more on psychotherapy, uh, but then they're done and they can come out and, and they can practice. Okay. Uh, and now in Ontario, a new thing is we have registered psychotherapists. They are not allowed to diagnose. Social workers and psychotherapists are not allowed to diagnose. They're not allowed to prescribe medication. Yes. Uh, really, it, they are limited to counseling and psychotherapy. As you were saying that the difference between the psychiatrist or the medications versus this psychology and the psychotherapy, well, I guess I have a couple of questions. But the first one is, what if someone has already been prescribed maybe some medication for anxiety or depression? Would they also be a good candidate? Would they be a good person to explore also the benefits of treating with a psychologist? Absolutely. Okay. Um, and again, when I say absolutely, this, it's not just a question of me giving you an opinion where I'm shooting from the hip. There's a lot of research in this. There's a very well-known NIMH, that's a National Institute of Mental Health, yeah. study from the United States. They looked at hundreds upon hundreds of people. And what they found is that the mixture of psychotherapy and medication, that combination, yeah. is better than medication alone. And in many cases, is better than psychotherapy alone. My own personal view, I don't love the idea of somebody taking medication without having psychotherapy at the same time. Ultimately, you need to learn how to cope in your life and you need to learn strategies so that you can challenge your own symptoms from a behavioral perspective and from a thinking perspective so that you can really get a handle on, on how you're living your life on a day-to-day -day basis. And how about the, con the, 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 the other way around? If someone is feeling these emotions they're not sure if they want to go the medication route. Is it a suggestion that maybe try the psychotherapy and see if see if the psychology helps and maybe that will avoid the prescriptions? Have you seen that happen before? It's not a one-size-fits-all. I cannot say to you in every case somebody should do psychotherapy first without medication. There are some people where I will see them and immediately the first thought I have is they need to be seen by a psychiatrist. Okay. Yeah. So that's part of what you do too. So if you see someone come in and maybe it hasn't been diagnosed and, and, or maybe they haven't talked to their family doctor about it, but you're sort of seeing them and you think, hey, they should benefit from psychiatry as well, would you make that recommendation? Yeah. Okay. I will. Or uh, often I'll talk to the family doctor. I might suggest that the family doctor consider an antidepressant, for example. I see. Okay. So while I can't prescribe these medications, I have a very good... I guess what I would call a clinical antenna for knowing when it makes sense for it to be considered. And there are times, by the way, when I'll see somebody in psychotherapy and I'll be thinking to myself, I'd really rather they not be on medication. Uh, there are times when, when medications will potentially blunt their emotions when I want their emotions to be sharpened uh, for the purpose wow. of psychotherapy. But I don't want the viewer of this podcast to go away thinking that I'm therefore saying medication's bad and that you should I do understand. that you should do psychotherapy first. As I said, it's not a one size fits all. I, what I would say is somebody needs to be comprehensively assessed by a psychologist or a psychiatrist who can then make recommendations. Yeah, of course. A term we often hear, even in just popular culture, is post traumatic stress disorder. 
you know, frequently I'll see that in reports or medical records uh, for someone following a car accident. What does that actually mean? Post-traumatic stress disorder is a condition that can develop after somebody has gone through an experience in life where they feel traumatized. In order to illustrate post-traumatic stress disorder, I'm first going to give you an example of what does not cause post-traumatic stress disorder. Okay. Imagine you have somebody who is in a romantic relationship and the person that they are involved with breaks up with them. And so they might feel terrible and they might go home and call their best friend and talk about it and yes. talk about it and talk about it. In that process of talking about it, they in a way are processing this turn of events in their life and they're assigning meaning to it. You start to realize maybe this person wasn't for me. Maybe it wasn't meant to be. Maybe there are good things that can come out of this. And slowly over time, you start to feel better. That person is able to do that because a breakup, while highly upsetting, is not traumatic in the way that we're talking big T trauma. Let's look at the other extreme. Let's just say you have somebody who is brutally assaulted. As an example, let's just say it's a sexual assault. That memory is so disturbing, they do not want to talk about it. They do not go home and call people and talk about it because talking about it causes such a strong emotional panic reaction that they can't tolerate it. So they cast it off. They, they want to avoid it at all costs. Post-traumatic stress disorder essentially is a disorder of avoidance. You wow. want to avoid the memory at all costs because the memory is so disturbing for you. By avoiding the memory, you end up inadvertently denying yourself or robbing yourself of an opportunity to process those underlying feelings like I was talking about in yes. example number one. We're often socialized with what psychologists call the just world myth. It goes like this. Good things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. If you think about it, we're kind of socialized this way. You did your homework. I'll take you for ice cream. Uh, you failed your test. You don't get to watch TV. You have to study more. Yeah. We all kind of learn good things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. Right. If you grow up with that as a mindset and suddenly this terrible thing happened to you and nothing's terrible has happened to you before. It's very easy for people in their thinking automatically to go to good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people, this terrible thing happened to me, therefore I must be a terrible person. Yeah. And so what that translates into are thoughts like, I should have gone to another street. Why did I leave at this time? It must be my fault. Maybe I was driving too fast. I don't think I was driving too fast, but maybe I was driving too fast. Yeah. And they start to really have these horrible thoughts about how they caused this. And the problem is, is because they're avoiding the memory and they're avoiding thinking about it, they never get an opportunity to actually challenge these thoughts. What are these stuck points? What are these thoughts that they have at the time of the accident about why the accident happened and how do they see it as having affected their life? So for example, maybe they no longer trust the world. They now see the world as, an, as a place that's now dangerous. Yeah. Uh, or maybe they don't trust people or maybe they experience others as being untrustworthy or, you know, I'm good. Yes. Can, there's a whole bunch of things wow. that can happen from it. Okay. So you can help them to start noticing the way that their thinking has changed because of the fact that they never were able to process their feelings and thoughts around the original trauma. So that's an example of what we might do with somebody with post-traumatic stress disorder. And is post-traumatic stress disorder, is that is that something you would commonly or frequently see following a serious car accident? A serious car accident, yeah. 
You don't typically see it often after a fender bender, although it is possible. I'll give you an example where you might see that. Say somebody is uh, seven months pregnant and they're very much showing and they're in a whiplash, but they hit the steering wheel and they are highly fearful that maybe the baby's been injured or been killed. Why? There's an example where, so typically post-traumatic stress disorder happens when there's an event that you are terrified that you will be seriously injured or killed or where you witness somebody else get seriously injured or killed. You don't typically, you know, if it's a whiplash, like after a typical fender bender, you don't typically see it in that way. That was very informative, Dr. Frank. Thank you for joining us today. And if people want to speak to you or learn more about you or, or seek treatment from you, where can they find you? My practice right now is called Dr. Jeremy Frank and Associates. I say right now because we actually are going to be changing the name fairly soon. It's, it's kind of a fun story. We purchased uh, what I believe is the oldest house in Thornhill, right next door to the Petro-Canada, right at the corner of Young and Center. So it's a, okay. a 200-year-old house built in 1825. We have renovated it, uh, put in a large addition, and uh, it's now a what I... I'm proud to say is a beautiful psychology clinic. Beautiful. Congratulations. Um, thank you. Yeah. Um, we, uh, we have a number of psychologists, social workers, psychotherapists uh, that work there. The phone number is 647-725-1919. Excellent. You could reach me by email, which is jfrank at drjeremyfrank.com. Our website right now is www.drjeremyfrank.com. Okay. And we'll put your contact details in the show notes below as well. So if anybody wants to reach out to you there, they can. Great. Thank you so much for joining us. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. My pleasure.